All right, now 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Open your Bibles with me, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. So our passage today is the final passage in this first section of this letter, which has been all about being a called church in a divided world. This first section has all been, been all about unity together. Uh, this passage today really serves in many ways as a concluding thought to that first section and as a transitional text to the next section of this letter, which is going to be about being a called church in an impure world. And so let's begin this morning by reading 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 to 21. Paul says this, He says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then Be imitators of me. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Amen. May God bless the preaching of his word to our hearts and to our souls this morning. Last week, Jason talked to us about how faithful pastors find their calling in the reality of the cross. And Jason highlighted for us how all pastors and Redeemer Fellowship, your pastors in particular, are not very impressive on their own. Jason highlighted for us last week how your pastoral team is really no better than a bad country song, right? 
because we have a guitar, a pickup truck, and a few awesome ladies, which pretty much sums it up for us, folks. Now, now Jason also painted the picture in one of his illustrations of me coming up on stage and slapping him like Will Smith. And I lean over to Drew. I said, I would literally knock him out. Like he would break in half before I even touched him. But friends, the point in last week's sermon was that your pastors are not impressive at all. All we have is the reality of the cross and the pattern and the power that it gives for our ministry. Without the cross of Christ, we don't have anything for pastoral ministry. Without the cross, we don't have anything. We are nothing as your pastors. And today, we continue in this chapter to see how the cross is not just a pattern for pastors to follow, but also for all Christian life. Paul starts by speaking of himself and Apollos as servants of Christ, but his goal is to exhort the Corinthian Christians themselves. He wants them to consider not just the pattern that the cross gives for pastoral ministry, but the pattern of the cross for all Christian life. And that's our main idea here this morning. The main idea for our message is this, the cross is the pattern and power for all Christian living. The cross is the pattern and power for all Christian living. And we have three points. Point number one, the application of the cross. That's verses six to seven. Point number two, the pattern of the cross. That's verses eight to 17. And then point number three, the power of the cross. That's verses 18 to 21. Let's begin with point number one, the application of the cross. Look at verse six with me. Paul says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers. Now, what does Paul mean that he has applied all things to himself and Apollos? Well, he means that that all that he has said thus far in this letter, all that he has said thus far about the wisdom of the cross over and against the wisdom of the world, All that he has said thus far about how the cross is everything and humanity's wisdom is nothing. All that he has said thus far about how eloquence is empty and servanthood is essential. All that he has said thus far about how the gold of the gospel is so far better to build our lives with than the wood, hay, and straw of this world. Paul says that he has taken all of these essential truths about the cross and he has made application of them into his own life and to Apollos as well. And we know that he's done that. We know that he's done that because that's exactly what we saw in last week's text. He explicitly says up in verse 1, this is how you should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. So Paul uses verses 1 to 5 to make immediate application to himself and to the other leaders. Why? Well, first, because good pastoral leadership always seeks to apply God's word to themselves before they apply it to other people, right? No one wants a pastor who only sees other people's sins. We all want pastors who are able themselves to sit under the authority and the power of God's word. So Paul is is making a sincere application of these truths in his own lives. But 
What we also see here is that he's making these applications into his own life also in order to benefit the Corinthian church. Look at what it says again. He says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. So so it's very clear that Paul's not just making a personal application. He's also making this application in order to, to benefit others, in order that they, in order that we today may learn by him not to go beyond what is written. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean that Paul wants them to learn to not go beyond what is written? Many commentators would say that this is one of the the hardest verses in the whole letter to interpret accurately. Some people think that Paul is referencing uh, a catchphrase or a proverb of that day that had been written down. Uh, Other people think that that this is a reference to the the word of the cross that he had written about in chapter 1. Other people think that it's a reference to the Old Testament scriptures. And I think that that is true. Because already in this letter, Paul has used the words as it is written multiple times to quote the Old Testament. And every time that Paul has referenced the Old Testament, it has been in reference either to God's wisdom, which removes our ability to boast in ourselves, or his activity, which has led us to boast in him. So, so when Paul says that, that we should not go beyond what is written, he, he is saying Don't live in a way that is contrary to this foundational biblical truth. Don't live as if human boasting is a good thing. It's not. And then he says that we should not go beyond what is written so that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. He's basically saying that we need to follow the counsel of Scripture and the, the wisdom of the cross and remain humble together so that we do not play favorites in church and thereby become divided. Church, listen, if, if 1 Corinthians was a sermon being preached by Paul, this is a big application moment in that sermon. He is bringing home the truth of the cross into our lives, and he's making this application pretty aggressively to us. He doesn't want us to be puffed up in favor of one against another. He doesn't want divisions among us based on any human reason. (laughs) And then he tells us why that's not a good idea. He says, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? I actually really like these, these words from Paul. I find them humorous. Paul's basically looking at us. He's saying, he's saying, you shouldn't be puffed up in favor of one against another. Because when I look at you, no, no, no. Honestly, Paul says, when anyone looks at you, they don't see anything different about you. You're all the same, he says. You're all human. You're all weak and frail, and unimpressive human beings. You're all people made out of dust by the hand of God, and apart from God's grace, there's nothing about any of you to set you apart as better, or to make you more worthy of praise, or of following than someone else. Folks, this is like, this is like Spider-Man, and Thor, and Captain America sitting around and arguing about whose superpowers are better and who's better because of those superpowers. Right? For them to, to be arrogant about the superpowers they have really makes no sense because 
all the superheroes, except maybe Iron Man and Batman, they all had their superpowers kind of happen to them. They kind of were given to them. They were either born as a god or bit by a spider or had a science experiment done on them. So they, they can't boast, yeah, look at my power. It happened to them. It's who they are. And church, Paul is saying that it's the same for us. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? <laughs> it's all been a gift, he says. He says, sure, some of you might have a better ability to lead than others. Some of you might be able to preach. Some of you might have the gift of administration. Some of you might be particularly evangelistic. Some of you might be blessed with a, a spiritual gift of prophecy. Some of you might have a greater amount of empathy for those who are hurting. But who are any of us to boast in those things and to divide over those things? Who are we, who are we to be puffed up in favor of one against another as if, as if these things are of our own making? They're all a gift. They're all God's grace being given to us. Church, this is the application of the cross. In Redeemer Fellowship, we must make this application into our own lives. God's grace through the sacrifice of his son on a cross, God's grace guts us of pride because God's grace, it, it removes all ability to boast in ourselves because apart from God's grace, we're all dead in our trespasses and sins. Apart from God's grace, we're enemies of God. Apart from God's grace, we would never even be part of a local church. And so how much more should we be in the church with humility and with respect and love and appreciation for the work that God has done and is doing in all of us? Oh, Redeemer Fellowship, may we all stand equally humble at the foot of the cross. May we celebrate the work that God is doing in all of our lives. And may our knowledge of what has been given to us keep us in that place of humility for many years together so that we might remain united and so that we might pursue holiness together. Friends, I actually want to make a very specific application here. I think that we can all agree that it would be silly to brag about our spiritual gifts, right? to be divided as a church based on what spiritual gifts we do or don't have. People don't want to be a part of a church where people bold, bragly, uh, bold, bra <laughs> brag boldly about their gift of administration or how their prophetic gift is more godly than other people's gift of service. Nobody would want to be a part of a church like that. But I think that there are other ways that we can fall into the same trap of pride. Oftentimes, by God's grace, God gives some of us life experiences that give us a new perspective on life and on the church, and that's good. Some of us have experienced disease. Some of us have endured trauma or abuse. Some of us have experienced poverty or have endured prejudice from others. And all of those experiences often give us a, a new perspective on life and on how the church should live together. 
I remember when I was a new cancer survivor, I became very critical of churches who didn't do a good job of caring for those who are sick. And I judged them for being ungodly and unfaithful in that area. And I'm very thankful for that new perspective that I received through that trial. Because the church is supposed to care for those who are sick and hurting in better ways. But what I failed to see was that my clarity about that issue was a gift from God that came through my experience. I, I, was, I was no different from anyone else in the church, but God had just allowed me to walk through a trial that gave me a new and a better perspective. But that knowledge, that perspective, was a gift. And I shouldn't, I shouldn't beat people up with it. I should have held it in humility. I still should have spoken about it. I should have still have raised concerns about it, but I should have done so as if, as if I should not have done so as if everyone around me was just ignorant and blind or as if they were failing in some major way. No, we should all steward our gifts, even the gifts of knowledge and perspective. We should steward them with humility. And so maybe you have a life experience that has helped you to see an area of need within the church or within your fellowship group or within your family. How are you going to steward that gift? Are you going to assume that everyone should immediately hear what you're saying and get on board with you? Or are you going to acknowledge that 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 knowledge is a gift and that you need to walk in humility and patience with those around you? Apart from God's grace, you'd be in the same place that they are. If we all hold our spiritual gifts, even our opinions and perspectives as gifts of grace, that will lead us towards humble fellowship together over many years. Friends, that brings us to our second point. Point number two, the pattern of the cross. So who here would describe yourself as a sarcastic person? Go ahead and raise your hand. Good. Thanks for being honest. That's great. Yep. You sarcastic people. Listen, you, if you are sarcastic, you are going to love this next section of chapter four because Paul is about as sarcastic as he can get. Look at verse eight. Paul says, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And you can hear the sarcasm kind of increasing in Paul's voice. And, and Paul is being sarcastic here because he's trying to show how wrong the Corinthians' way of thinking is compared to his own. So he wants to show a strong contrast between himself and the other apostles and the Corinthian church. He says, already you have all you want. And, and what he means is that according to their worldly perspective of what is valuable and good, according to the Corinthian value system, the Corinthian church is already very rich. They have their eloquence. They have their philosophies and philosophers. They have their power structures already in place. According to that criteria, they are very rich, Paul says. He says, without our ministry even, in these areas, you're already as rich as kings. Folks, do you understand what's happening here? But Paul is trying to show them how, how fundamentally opposed they are in their thinking. He's saying this. He's saying, if your way of thinking about the Christian life, which is connected to all of these worldly philosophies, if that way of thinking is right, then, then by all means, you are very rich. In fact, you're so rich, you're like kings. And hey, he says, if you are right, maybe we apostles should get in on that goodness. Right? He says in verse 8, 
and would that you did reign. I, I wish that you did, so that we might share the rule with you. Paul basically says, I wish that you were right, and that your way of thinking was right, because it's much easier to live like kings than as servants, and I'd get on board real fast. Paul, Paul like, props them up, but then he's about to slam them with a comparison. Look at verse 9. He says, for I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. He, he basically is saying, you think that your ways of, of eloquence and, and polish and worldly riches and power and prosperity are, are valuable and good. You think that your, your prosperity is a sign of God's favor and love. But then, church, how do you explain the fact that the men that God have, has chosen to lead the church, the apostles themselves, the men who are called by God to proclaim and to advance the gospel, how do you explain the fact that they look nothing like you at all? In fact, our lives, he says, could not be more different from you, Corinthians. You want to live like kings over here, and we're over here feeling like death itself. We're serving our hearts out, and we're being laughed at by the world. He says that we have become a, a spectacle to the world. That's, that's how different they are from the worldly value system. It's comical to the world to watch. He says, we are fools for Christ's sake. Paul says this, he says, this contrast doesn't make sense. If being loved by God means an easy, polished, rich, eloquent, easy, comfortable, prosperous life in this world, then how do you explain the fact that the very men who first spoke to you of the love of God look more like galley slaves than kings? It doesn't make sense. And then he goes into this long sarcastic comparison between them he says we are fools for christ's sake but you are wise in christ we are weak but you are strong you're held in honor but we in disrepute church you should read those phrases as almost accusatory questions paul's basically saying are you for real about this are you serious right now and then he goes on and to give an explicit description of who he and the other apostles are. Verse 11, to the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless and we labor working with our own hands. He says, when reviled we bless, when persecuted we endure, when slandered we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Paul says, this is what the Christian life is supposed to look like on this side of heaven. You think that you're supposed to be reigning in glory already. You think that the promises of God over your life for prosperity are to be actualized and realized here and now, but no, for the leaders of the church, those who are most mature, the expectation of reality is not earthly prosperity, but pain and suffering. He says this word, he says, we are the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. That word refuse is a graphic word. It basically means to, to wipe off or to remove any unclean thing. You get the picture. 
It's almost like Paul is, is standing there and he accidentally stepped in horse manure. And he grabs a stick and he's just scraping it off the bottom of his shoe. And he's like, oh, wait, you know what? That's a good illustration. That's what we are like to the eyes of the world. That's who we are in comparison to that value system. Listen, Paul, Paul's not hating on himself. He's not depressed. <laughs> he doesn't have an identity complex. He's not a pessimistic puddle glum only seeing the bad side of things. No, he's being honest and truthful because this is the reality of the Christian life on this side of heaven. The, the Corinthian Christians had an over-realized eschatology. They thought that the promises of prosperity in heaven were supposed to be experienced here and now, but Paul says, no, God doesn't promise that to you. In fact, he often promises you the exact opposite, but he says, that's okay, church, because that is where his grace is going to be proven in your life. It's also very clear here that Paul, he's not just, not just talking about what it's like to be a pastor. He's not just talking about the, the difficult work of, of ministry. No, he's speaking of these things to the Corinthians because he, he wants them to know what to expect in their own lives. We can, we can see that in, in verse 14. Paul says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Listen, I urge you then. That's a strong word. I urge you then. Be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. To remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Paul is very clearly saying this is the pattern of the cross for your life. He is saying, follow me as I follow Jesus. He is saying, do not expect the servant to be greater than the master. He is saying, if the path to glory was through a wooden cross for King Jesus, then the path to glory will be the same for his disciples. He's saying, let's not expect the pattern of our lives to be one physical blessing after another. He's saying, let's not arrogantly expect to receive everything that we ever hope or pray for. He's saying, let's not expect our lives to always look successful according to worldly standards. He's saying, you may at times experience worldly blessing, but those things are not the ultimate sign of God's favor and love. No, God's favor and love is seen most clearly as his son hung bloody on a cross. And he calls you to walk in the shadow of that cross. And he's going to prove his faith and love and blessing in your life in that place. And Paul says, Redeemer Fellowship, I want to admonish you. He says, I want to challenge you as a loving father away from this worldly way of thinking. Be imitators of me, he says. Don't live as if God's promise of prosperity and blessing is going to be fully realized here and now. No, Redeemer Fellowship, let's live boldly and confidently and courageously as fools for Christ here in this world, even as we keep our eyes set on the world that is to come in heaven. And as we do, oh, there will be power. There will be strength. There will be goodness for our souls that the world knows no nothing about. And that brings us to point number three. The power of the cross. Look at verse 18. 
Paul says, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? So, so it seems like there were people who were arrogantly claiming that Paul was never going to return to the Corinthian church. That he wasn't going to come in and check in with them to see how they were doing. They were likely slandering Paul and saying that he had abandoned them altogether. And that assumption that Paul was not going to come again was making certain of the leaders very bold in their leadership. They could lead the church however they wanted to because they claimed Paul was not going to hold them accountable. And so wrong doctrine, wrong practice was everywhere in the church. They allowed themselves to do whatever they wanted because they claimed that they were in charge. But Paul says, well, I'll come to you soon if the Lord wills. He says, it's my intention to visit again, and and guess what? When I come, we're going to have a little chat. We're going to talk a little bit. We're going to do a bit of a a spiritual checkup together to see what kind of church you really are. Are you a healthy local church, or are you a sick local church? So so Paul is, is both informing and warning. He's saying, I'm coming, and when I do, I'm going to challenge these wrong ways of thinking and speaking. But church, did you notice what Paul is going to look for when he comes? When he comes to visit the Corinthian church, what is he going to look for to determine whether they are a healthy local church or not? Look at verse 19. He says, I will find out not the talk. So the talk, that word talk, is basically his summary way of saying all of the polish and eloquence and the the philosophies that they value so much. I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. So apparently... The mark of a healthy local church is not the talk and the eloquence and the polish of those in the city of Corinth, but rather the power of the gospel as seen in other ways. And how do we see that power? Well, in the context of this passage, we see it through the pattern of living that flows from the cross. Paul is saying that how he will determine the success of this local church is not based on eloquent speech, but on practical living. Whether they are built on the right foundation or not is not based on whether they look around and, and see themselves as similar to the world or whether they're externally impressive to look at. No, whether their success will be determined by how different they are from the world. The success marker is not their eloquence and polish and prosperity, but rather in the context of this chapter, success is determined by their ability to endure hardship with faith and courage because of their trust in God's grace. Evidence of strength for them, evidence of strength for us is our ability to look like fools in this world. And Redeemer Fellowship, that should both sober and encourage us. It should make us all ask the question, are we focusing on the right things as a church family? Are we pursuing worldly praise 
Or are we building and growing disciples who are satisfied to be the scum of the world, the refuse of all things? Listen, if the fruit of Redeemer Fellowship is that there are a few hundred people who want to look like and be accepted by the world through their success, then we have failed altogether at at church. But if the fruit of Redeemer Fellowship by God's grace is that there are a few hundred disciples of King Jesus who say on a daily basis, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful, Lord, for thee. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my King. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as you choose. Here am I, all of me. Take my life, it's all for thee. That's what success in God's grace looked like for Paul, and that's what success in God's grace should look like for us. Church, this is where the power of the cross is going to be seen most fully in our lives. You know, up in verse 10, Paul says, we are fools for Christ's sake. And then he goes on to describe who we are in this world. But his point is not to say, man, I wish that things were different. I wish that we were prospering like the world more. No, his point is to say that this is what godly prosperity looks like right now. He says we hunger and thirst. We are, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. So live, living for Jesus had not made Paul the nicest dressed person in the world. But he had the power of Christ to endure and that was enough. Friend, maybe you have lost your job. Maybe you've lost your job because of certain convictions you have, and so you wonder about how you're going to feed and clothe and provide a home for your family, and maybe it feels like a really weak place to be, a a vulnerable place, an exposed place to be. But guess what Paul says that you are living out right now? The kingdom power. He's saying you're living in the good of his grace. You are prospering even right now in that place of weakness. Paul says, when when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. The the world looked on, on Paul's life choices and they mocked them. They reviled and slandered them. They spoke of their decisions as evil and foolish rather than as wise and good. But Paul had the power of Christ to respond with blessing and love and care. Maybe you are being mocked by your teammates or by your classmates or by your roommate for your faith in Jesus. Maybe being a Christian has cost you dearly in the area of friendship and popularity. Maybe family members don't understand why you live the way that you live and in their confusion, even in their jokes about you, you feel weak and alone. Friend, Paul says that you are demonstrating the very power of God through your life. You are prospering according to God's grace, and he says that you can endure. Ben Heidegger had a word earlier this morning. We didn't have time for it, but it spoke of people who feel small and insignificant. We believe God wants to speak to you that you are experiencing the power of God even in that place. Paul wants to encourage us as Christians to live radically different lives from the world around us. He's trying to encourage us that 
Living boldly for Jesus in a world that doesn't agree is one of the most powerful things we can do with our lives. And friends, listen, this encouragement is perfectly timed. Not only will this dependence upon the Lord and not upon worldly standards of success, not only will it keep us united as a church family, which is section one of this letter, this truth will also prepare us for the hard things that Paul is getting ready to say. Being fools for Christ's sake has many applications and many implications. And we're going to see many of them in chapters 5 to 7 and how many of them have to do with our bodies and how we live for God's glory with our bodies. And so maybe you are single right now, but you know that if you just compromised on your convictions just a little bit, you could have that relationship that you wanted. And Paul says that you are living out the power of the gospel in that place and you're prospering. Maybe you are someone who struggles with same-sex attraction and the world says that you are a fool because you are choosing a life of godly abstinence rather than living out those desires. Friend, Paul says that you are living out the power of the gospel in that place. Maybe you are in a hard marriage situation and you are ready to quit and the world is telling you that you are a fool for staying. Friend, Paul says that you are living out the power of the gospel as you prayerfully consider every possible safe way to remain. Maybe you're engaged to be married, and as Paul says in chapter 7, your passions are strong, and the world says that you are a fool for not enjoying sex before marriage. Friend, God says that you are prospering in his grace and are living a life of power as you walk in that humility. Paul says, I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, not this pomp, not this empty bravado, but I'll find out their power. Is God's grace at work in their lives? For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. Christian, as you endure through many dangers, toils, and snares, the power of God's kingdom is being displayed and promoted and glorified in your life. You may never have that house that you want. You may never have be seen as successful. You may never have the marital bliss that you hope for. Infertility might steal your plan for your family. You may never be able to express your relational and sexual desires as you would want our church may never be a success according to worldly standards we may never buy land or build a building america may not always be a place where we can safely proclaim our faith in jesus and and have a place in the community but our lives here on earth will still be a testament of god's grace because his power is at work within us but as we endure As we labor, Paul says, not for ourselves, but for Jesus, the power of God's grace will be loudly seen in our lives, and he will strengthen us until the final day when we will all reign as kings with him in glory. Amen. Let's pray.